Hello and welcome to the Parkview Podcast. I'm Paul Hunk, Investment Analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Osama Himani, CIO at The Firm. With less than two weeks to go until the US presidential election, we wanted to record a balanced discussion around the race and to chat about the potential implications on markets of some of the more likely expected election outcomes. Our guest this week is Steve Clements, editor-at-large of The Hill, the US's most-read non-partisan political media platform. Prior to this, Steve served as the editor-at-large of The Atlantic. He founded and currently serves as a senior fellow of the American Strategy Program at the New America Foundation, and also serves as executive vice president of the Economic Strategy Institute. Steve appears frequently as a political commentator across major news networks globally and hosts the popular weekly news show The Bottom Line that appears on the Al Jazeera English Global Network. Steve was generous to take time out of his busy schedule to chat to us and we are very much looking forward to the conversation. And with that, I'll hand over to Osama. We're recording this about two weeks before the elections. Many of the circumstances today are, are quite unusual. The economy is in a very deep recession with permanent unemployment continuing to rise. This isn't a favorable position for any incumbent. And we're seeing Trump obviously trailing substantially in the polls. But Trump's core base is as enthusiastic as ever. And, and you know, party loyalty means that, that some states will, will not switch support. Is there a path for Trump to win? Or is a Biden victory a foregone conclusion? Thank you. It's great to be with you. I, I think that a Biden victory is absolutely not a foregone cl- uh, conclusion. You know, I think we see that in a number of ways. One, I mean, Kellyanne Conway, as the famous pollster for Donald Trump, kept talking about the hidden voter that's out there. And so we are uncertain whether that hidden voter has finally been identified and is showing up in the polls or not. Uh, so that's one dimension of it. While Biden leads in all of the major um, uh, battleground states right now, the truth is that there is there's a narrowing going on and Trump is surging in places like Florida, uh, in Georgia. Uh, and so he's got a certain core there. The question is, how does he get to 270 electoral college votes? There are a couple of ways he could do it. <clears throat> it looks like he's got to win Arizona and North Carolina. Absolutely. But then he has to either win Pennsylvania or he's got to win Michigan uh, and or some, maybe he can trade off one of these other states for Nevada. But when you look across the pathway that he's got, it's a very, very slim one. Uh, and it involves winning either Pennsylvania, which he might do, but he's got to hold to, onto his other states. And as I said, there's not a single one of these states right now that is in his column um, that he desperately needs. So there's a thin, narrow way, no errors that Donald Trump could win this with uh, the Electoral College. Um, but Joe Biden has a lot of different pathways. This is very interesting. But there's another unusual element in this election is that Trump is, seems to be setting the stage to contest any result he doesn't like. This can mean long, you know, a long legal process with a lot of uncertainty. In, in 2000, when, when there was this, this you know, a very close call, Gore decided to concede rather than see a very long legal battle. But, con- you know, conceding isn't in part of Trump's character. I mean, should we be expecting a long period of uncertainty? And and how much of a margin of victory does Biden actually need to lay this issue to rest so so that it's a a clear, uncontested result? Osama, it's such a great question and and so full of unknowns that we don't know what's going to play out. But, But let's pause it for a minute that it is a close race. 
And so that um, you have 270 electoral college votes that are certified for Joe Biden um, or look as if they will be certified for Joe Biden. You know, at that moment, you know, he will technically be the winner. But you're right. Donald Trump isn't going to stand down uh, easily in a close race. Now, one of the challenges that Trump has in that situation is he can't just cry foul for no reason. He's got to lay out probably mail-in ballots or something of that sort. But his attack can't be through the United States Supreme Court, to which he's just possibly gotten another uh, Supreme Court justice confirmed, uh, hopefully giving him majority. The, the, the issue is that the state is the judge and justice and jury uh, involved in this because you have 50 states plus the District of Columbia uh, and other districts that vote for electors for the president of the United States, not um, not not uh, uh, the federal level. So each state has its own rules, its own system. And so it's within that dimension. And I think a lot of people have been reading media that has been, uh, uh, I think, telling the story very poorly that that this is not something that can be easily hit. So let's let's imagine it's a close race. I do think you're right that Donald Trump will try and contest it if it's a close near parity um, uh, result within the Electoral College. I don't think it's going to be that if, if Biden you know, comes in. There's a chance that if Biden has more than 300 Electoral College votes that you know, I think uh, uh, Donald Trump got 302 to remind and that only you know, required a shift of 73,000 votes. But if you're at that level, then I don't think the system itself is going to support Donald Trump's claims. Now, on top of that, there's another dimension. We don't know whether the, whether the United States Senate will remain Republican or not Republican. But let's look at the fact that not only Joe Biden wins, but that the Democrats win the Senate. At that moment, you have to ask yourself, what will someone like Mitch McConnell do? Mitch McConnell, for as long as I've known him, and he is no fan of Donald Trump, believe me, they work together. They've got to deal with each other. They are not fans of each other. And at that moment where Mitch McConnell sees Donald Trump going down, the Senate going down, Mitch McConnell is not going to cede power, his own power. And I think you'll see many Senate Republicans, as we've already seen in Senator Sass of Nebraska and others, begin to put knives in the back of Donald Trump. They won't be there for him if that happens. And so Donald Trump's claims and efforts to contest the election will collapse at that moment. Another unusual element of this election is that instead of you know in-depth discussion about policy, it's become more of a referendum against Trump's personality or for or against Trump's personality. As soon as the election outcome becomes more certain, the discussion is going to move towards policy. And Biden's expenditure and taxation plans are, are pretty significant, especially with respect to the environment. So do you feel that he'll be able to implement his agenda if the Senate majority remains Republican? It's a great question, Paul. I think he's going to have a tough time if the Senate remains Republican. I think we're going to see an ongoing era of gridlock and and very, very limited, if any, progress on some of the, the core structural needs of the country. And, you know, some of those continue to be health care. They are very clearly infrastructure. But I would say that, you know, at the beginning of your, your question, there's an assumption there that that Donald Trump is all style and not substance. And, you know, I think there is an implicit policy agenda that Trump represents. Um, I think America first is more than just bluster. I think to a certain degree, it's a certain kind of foreign policy that really continues to um, withdraw and limit and, and uh, put distance between America's obligations in international institutions. We've seen that, you know, with the 
his pledge to withdraw from the WHO. We've seen it in his disdain for the United Nations. You know, he's not a big fan of NATO uh, or the WTO. And so I think there's a there's a policy prescription there. And when you begin looking at that, there are dimensions of that that are, that are very important. I also have to remind that Donald Trump, you know, despite whatever Joe Biden's putting on the table uh, and wants to spend, Donald Trump is an incredible spender. He's he spent three. He's got a three point one trillion dollar deficit this year. Now, obviously, we're in the era of COVID. There's a lot of big money that's pumped out, but this is a gargantuan amount of money compared to what Barack Obama uh, oversaw after the 2008-2000 financial crisis, when he was strongly criticized. But I mean, the crisis wasn't his doing; it happened under George Bush's watch. But they came in with the TARP uh, relief, and and Obama to this day is criticized as a tax and spend liberal because of the TARP relief from the 0809 financial crisis. Well, 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 I have to tell you, Donald Trump has set the kind of huge um, all-time records uh, that he likes to set with regards of his own deficit. So that, that deficit is also part of Donald Trump's legacy, but it's also gonna be a big constraining factor on Joe Biden, no matter who comes, you know, whether they have the uh, Senate or not. Uh, it's going to be very hard to justify a further uh, deepening of the debt situation of the U United States. And, and that's going to be a kind of cross that uh, um, uh, Biden is going to have to bear. And how is he going to find money to spend when, in fact, the bank, is, bank has already been broken uh, during the Trump administration? When you look at Biden's tax proposals, you know, they're, they're, they're actually, you know, even even conservative um, think tanks would think that that you know it'll be it'll be a struggle for him to even raise taxes by 200 billion given the state of the economy etc so so you, you, yeah that's a that's an important thought indeed we raised the issue of foreign policy and and i think those of us in the rest of the world i mean this is this is where trump has had a very big impact now you know Trump's disdain for multilateralism is what really sets him apart from Biden. But realistically, how many foreign policy U-turns can one expect? I mean, uh, you know, it is ultimately the United States which changed policies. It's not just a matter of a administration. And, and importantly, you know, let's take the relationship to China, with China, for example. That's been a, you know, that's grabbed a lot of, generated a lot of headlines over the last for years, but but the reality is that China and the United States were moving apart even under the, the Obama administration through TPP. Can things like the TPP be resurrected? Will there be changes to policy that you know uh, that are beyond cosmetic? And and importantly, you know, is there is there a constituency left on either side of the aisle in favor of free trade? That's such a great question. Um, the constituency for free trade has eroded and eroded and eroded. Uh, and so they're out there. I mean, you've got uh, Rob Portman, uh, you know, in the in the Republican side, you've got some Democrats that are part of the new Democrat coalition in the House that are big believers in trade, but they are in a minority situation. But you can see that down the road when some of these topics are, are, are detoxified, um, there is an opportunity for some some bipartisan work on trade. But you're right that the left faction of the Democratic Party is not there. They do not believe in trade. They want to sort of, you know, amp up 
uh, uh, lots of regulatory environment on labor and environmental issues, which you know is not an illegitimate cause, but it's through that lens that they look at trade. It's a very different way to look at trade. And then you have a lot of Republicans, and I think this was said during you know, the time of President George W. Bush when his best friends were baseball franchise owners and oil men. They weren't great uh, constituents way back then uh, for trade. So this, this deterioration in support for trade has been many administrations long. So we should, we should acknowledge that. I think, I think it was interesting that, that with whether it was Singapore or Korea um, or the you know, TPP, uh, that, that Obama got as much as, it, as, as he did get done. Now, I think you ask a really important question. Are U-turns possible on some of this stuff? I don't think they can do a quick U-turn on something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, given the overwhelming objection with a big uh, chunk of the Democratic Party caucus. So that is going to have to percolate out there. But I think eventually um, an administration wanting to sort of continue to put pressure on China and to sort of gather allies is going to see TPP not as an economic deal, but as the strategic deal that it screwed up and that its failure to lead in that cost America enormously uh, in terms of this contest with China. Because part of dealing with China and China's rise is neither having a kinetic collision with it, but you've got to meet it, you've got to confront it, you've got to be there, they've got to feel the weight of American presence. And that is not the case right now. So I think on China, it has become an increasingly toxic situation. It's hard for China to undo what it's done in Hong Kong. It's hard for China to undo it with, with what it's done, you know, with essentially concentration champs uh, uh, in Xinjiang uh, and so many other issues. So the China problem is there. But where you will see a U-turn right away are in things like the Paris Climate Accord. So I think you'll see you'll see that turned around immediately. I think you'll see uh, Joe Biden go to Brussels. Uh, or to other places in Europe, and basically uh, embrace and give a giant public hug to NATO uh, and talk with no uh, uh, pause at all about the importance of Article 5, that, that, that clause where uh, it's one for all and all for one as a uh, security alliance with our closest allies and most successful uh, security relationship in the world. And I think you'll see Joe Biden do that and kind of reverse essentially a deterioration of relations. I think you'll see efforts are gonna be very, very hard to try to put something back in place on the JCPOA. And remember, Britain, France, Germany, Russia, China all continue to be parties to a JCPOA, but it's not giving Iran what it negotiated for, which is an end to sanctions and the sort of economic investment that it had hoped for. But I think you're going to see some effort to see whether there's any pathway there. I think it's gonna be very, very hard, but, but I do know that that's high on the agenda for a lot of the foreign policy crowd um, around Biden. Um, and I think things like on health, global health, World Health Organization, you're going to see America back in that in a nanosecond. So there will be a number of U-turns, but they're low-hanging fruit. The tough ones will be, what do you do with China? And I think you're going to see the effort, you know, because Joe Biden has been to China many times. That was part of his portfolio. He set up the Sunnyland Summit uh, with Obama and Xi Jinping when Xi Jinping moved from vice premier uh, to premier. And, and I think you're going to see an effort to... Um, lower the, 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 the uh, octave level of the rhetoric, but not to go soft in dealing with some of China's uh, missteps, both in trade, but also particularly human rights. So turning on to regulation, um, you know, the potential regulation of big tech has huge implications for investors simply because of how, you know, how much these companies dominate the market in general, especially in the U.S., 
Um, we've seen Republicans and Democrats being very critical of large tech companies, often for different reasons. There seems to be a consensus that change is needed, but we know we're no closer to them agreeing um, on what exactly needs to change and how. Do you see the parties coming, you know, coming to some sort of agreement post the election? Look, I, I think there are some glaring issues in, in the tech space that deal with communications and privacy on the front end, where there is probably uh, going to be some bipartisan effort, constructive effort, to begin to define what our standards uh, for privacy are. Um, Europe did this with their GDPR. California and some states have laid out their own requirements. But we run the risk in the United States of having 50 different standards rather than a federal standard on privacy, um, which is part of a way of addressing the Internet of Things, addressing uh, 5G, addressing you know, a lot of the new technological waves and communications and information that are coming down the way. That's one dimension. I won't call it low hanging fruit because it's still hard and difficult or we would have done it, but it is out there and likely to be done. The bigger part of it that you get into, and this is a timely day because I just got an alert moments ago where the Justice Department is going to accuse Google of protecting an illegal monopoly. Uh, and it's the biggest legal challenge to a tech giant in decades. So what we're seeing right now is something that have been, has been brewing is what um, are the federal regulatory authorities going to do with large uh, platform monopolies like Google, like Facebook and others. And there's, a, there's pressure to so-called break them up, but break them up means what? And there's no consensus at all about what that is. Um, and, 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 and breaking them up, uh, you know, when, you, when, you're, when you've got, you know, a platform that, that everyone is using, it's, it's very unclear, or whether they move somehow to become a publicly re, uh, regulated, you know, sort of utility at some point has been part of this discussion. But, but Paul, I think we're so early in that discussion that even with the move from the Justice Department day, this is going to be a decade long or decades long battle between these platform monopolies and the tech community at large um, and what the federal regulatory authorities in America um, are going to see. Because I don't think there's any consensus there uh, on, on what to do other than the fact that there's something that has to be done eventually because these companies um, now represent such a huge part of the U.S. and global economies on their own. And, and there's a worry that that power needs to be checked in some way. Uh, but I think it's going to be something on the front end and it's going to, it's going to be a nasty fight uh, between these companies and us. And it's also going to be influenced by the international side. If you've got Alibaba uh, and, and other platforms around the world that are not being challenged that way, I think one of the questions is, are we basically uh, handicapping um, American multinational firms in this space in ways that are going to leave that terrain open to particularly Chinese competitors, but other global competitors as well. So we're just at the beginning of this. It's gonna be a struggle. It's a great question, but there was action today uh, uh, on this very front. Well, that, that's very interesting. And, and, and raising the Alibaba question was, is also interesting. Do you think, and just to tie it a bit with, with the issue of multilateralism, you know, would there be appetite, uh, maybe some around Biden, but uh, would have that view, but I don't know if there would be appetite, say, within Congress for for more international cooperation in terms of tech regulation. And, you know, the Europeans certainly would like that. They would like to coordinate over things like a digital tax. I mean, is, there, is this something that's even on anyone's radar in, 
in 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 Washington, or or is this just a you know just a European way of of looking at things? Look, I think the I mean I've just returned from a conference in Europe and of, of finance ministers, and I think there is a desire and interest to look at ways to cooperate with the U.S. on some of these key topics. The digital tax, for whatever reason, uh, and I can't pretend to be an expert on that, is one of these third rails where in the U.S. Uh, folks go apoplectic um, about it. It's one of these sacred areas of non-taxation here. Um, and the Europeans have a very, very different view. But when you talk to um, mainstream Democrats or Republicans, there's a real aversion on that front. But more broadly on the broad question of finding other areas that may eventually involve a kind of taxation. I mean, I see a lot of interest on the privacy front and others of working out new frameworks, um, particularly with the Europeans, with the Japanese, with the Koreans. So we can't forget that Asia is a key part of this. Um, but I think what we see happening, and I think it's really interesting, is one side of this are the rules of privacy and you know all the human dimensions to how technology is deployed. Another side of this question are, is the technology itself and whether we are sitting on the brink of the creation of what people are calling the splinter net and whether technology standards are going to divide because of our inability and our failure to do exactly what you said, to work with China, Korea, Japan, the Nokias and Ericsson's in Europe and others and begin looking at um, standards that work across the board for these various companies. And the, the battle over Huawei, the concerns over Huawei are right at the middle of this so that the national security concerns that the United States and some of its allies have about Huawei communications infrastructure, which is next generation 5G uh, communications infrastructure, is causing right now a dramatic split in the world. And where that could eventually go is right now, no company in the world can provide silicon to Huawei legally um, or faces sanctions itself. But at the same time, you know, Huawei is deeply deployed in the countries that have become part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So we face the prospect that this could possibly become a divided universe where standards, been, and I got to tell you, after talking to the Qualcomm's of the world and many other major companies, that's not a prospect they want to embrace because they will lose market share globally. You will have a divided world and, you know, you've got to look at where the global middle class is growing. It's not growing you know, as fast in Europe and the United States as it is in other areas that are part of the Belt and Road Initiative that China is putting in. So you may forfeit that future growth to your primary rival. And that's why a lot of these knee-jerk actions have incredible repercussions for the future of U.S. business, technology, R&D, and, and global growth. And we may be, unfortunately, we have to look at the prospect that we could lock ourselves into a low or slow growth uh, part of the world, and that will have ramifications for who succeeds in the long run. And I would tell you, I would put my money on China in that situation, not the U.S. That's quite a that <laughs> that's quite the prospect. The knee-jerk policies that we're seeing um, are are partly populist in nature, is is what they are really. And and I'm wondering if if we step back and think about the longer term, do, how might U.S. politics be changing? after the Trump administration? Could, would this sort of Trump-like populism survive after Trump? Can it? Uh, or do you think there's, you know, is there room for more traditional Republicans to, to assume leadership again? Such an important question. Uh, I would say the way I look at it 
and again, speculating because there's so many unknowns, is, is the Democratic Party is an interesting model to think about, that it is really a patchwork of identities and interests that are often not aligned, that are sometimes working uh, against each other, but occasionally in times of elections on kind of broad rights or whatever, they, they, can, they can come together. But the Democratic Party is, is sort of a big tent and it's very hard to corral these folks, but there's a lot of, there's always a struggle in the Democratic Party over what its priority should be because there's so many component pieces struggling against each other and it's under the Democratic tent. The Republicans, you know, secret to their strength, the secret sauce of the Republican Party for decades has been that there is a greater homogeneity uh, in the Republican Party, a greater, you know, synthesis of, of interests. Um, and it's why that even though the Democratic Party was theoretically larger, the Republican Party is so effective and, and, is, in it, and is key. I think that's coming undone for exactly the reason you said, that there is a, that the populist surge, which has found its way into the Republican Party uh, and has become the dominant personality in kind of a schizophrenic situation where it's the dominant personality right now, I think it's going to be, there's going to be an effort to make it a subordinate personality as another personality within the Republican Party comes up that may be more traditional, that may kind of look back at kind of core conservative tenets that used to, to be there. But I think that, you know, the kind of populism we've seen under Trump, he didn't create this. That kind of populism has been in American politics for just about forever. And, and you know, I was just reading about Abraham Lincoln and, the, and his battle against the Know Nothing Party, of which he would not, and that's what they called themselves, the Know Nothings. You know, and, and there's a great, great um, uh, 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 line from Abraham Lincoln where he said, you know, this is back in the 1860s, he said, I'd rather go to Russia where there is no uh, pretense of democracy and live in an honest, uh, illiberal place. You know, so there, there's so many, you know, parallels back to, you know, that time from long ago. But I think that 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 brand of pugnacious nationalism that is skeptical you know, across the board of progress, if you will, is, has been part of American politics. Now, why have they succeeded? They've succeeded in part because well-organized minority groups with, you know, tech and social media uh, and networks and radio shows have been able to um, uh, demonstrate a power and a muscularity of interest, but so can other groups do that. And I think that you're going to have, if Donald Trump fails, I mean, that's a big if, if Donald Trump fails badly, I think there will be wreckage in the Republican Party. I think there will be blame, finger pointing, and a period of, of um, anger inside that party that will be used by those that do not like where the party went to kind of come in and rebuild it. But it's not going to be easy. And they're going to have to fight it out with populists who aren't going to go away with their own agenda and their own fears and concerns and anxieties about this moment. So I think you're going to see the Republican Party become you know, a brawl and it's going to be an ongoing brawl, but I think you'll have, have uh, you will not have the same. I think that what they're going to do is try to put in conditions that don't allow a kind of Huey Long style, Donald Trump style political boss machine to come in and take over that whole party. I think they will take steps and efforts in a way to try to prevent that kind of thing from happening again in the near term. And I think it's gonna be a difficult battle. And so to some degree, what I'm saying is that the Republican Party is going to become a lot like the Democratic Party uh, and become a brawl. You know. Well, we look forward to see what the what the results are in two weeks. It's a delicate moment, I think, but hopefully, um, see more 
you know, a return to more more normal sort of policies over the long term. Thank you very much, uh, Steve, for taking the time to talk to us. Your thoughts are always insightful. I, I read your articles. I follow your commentary. And you, you've always had uh, very insightful things to say. Thank you very much. Losama and Paul, thank you both very much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.